right, it's good to be back. Uh, I think this is the first time I've preached since the beginning of the year. I spent, I, I'm thankful for all the people, Pastor Roger, Joe, and Tim for filling in, uh, and others as well. Um, to fill in while I spend most of January preparing for ordination service or ordination exam, and I thank you all for praying for me and sending text messages and just, yeah, supporting my family during that time. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is going to be the text for us, at least the chapter, or verses, verse 45 to 52. Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 52. Mark writes, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Father God, be with us this evening as we look at your word, as we glimpse into the life of your son. May it motivate us to live a life of faithfulness. May we be at all of who he is and cause us to have a greater devotion to you. Lord, help us now, allow us to understand enable the Holy Spirit to cause us to know your word and to be convicted by it so that we could be transformed by it to the image of your son. Lord, thank you for this time that we have and this privilege to hear your word. In your son's precious name, amen. One of the greatest joys of being an expositor of God's word is that we get to dive into the text and try to understand not just what's going on in the narratives of scripture or or the epistles, the gospels, or throughout the, or what, you know, the story that's going on in the pages of scripture, but we actually get to understand and learn more about the cultural setting in which the original readers get to read. In a lot of ways, understanding the original audience helps us relate to the text a little bit better. It becomes more rich to us because we understand why certain books were written with the intent to encourage the people to greater worship of the Lord. But not only that, but when you study the scriptures, aside from just the first level, just seeing what's going on in the story and then understanding the original audience, but we also get to see how each book is connected into the larger context of the scriptures. How one book or any book in the scripture is, is part of this huge narrative that we call the Bible. And even then, how this book is used throughout redemptive history. 
And it's really the first two the levels, really, when we read the text and understand the, what the story is about and understand the cultural aspect of the original. I was reading this book that gets me really excited because it gives me a lot of understanding and why the book is written the way it is written. The book of Mark was written with, this, with, the, with these young believers in mind, Christians that are persecuted, Christians that are you know, relatively young in the faith. In fact, I would argue that a lot of these Christians early on, they didn't have the scriptures like we do. They might have had letters going around and they had people evangelize to them. So they, they have this conceptual knowledge of who Jesus and many of them believed in, in Jesus Christ. But a lot of them struggled in their faith because they, it wasn't like our time where we get to have the Bible so readily accessible to us. They heard about this Jesus Christ and they, and they believed. They trusted in the message they heard, whether it's like from the apostle or some other believer they were evangelized to, their hearts were opened by the work of the Holy Spirit, and they became followers of Jesus Christ. And every time that they heard or would get some letter from the apostles, it encouraged them because they now know what is it like to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. This book is written about 20 years after Jesus ascended. So you must imagine what it must be like to hear that there is a gospel written by Mark, who is a close associate, close associate to Peter, that not only before all the things that they heard about Jesus, now they can actually read it or, or have someone read it to them. It's very unique because now they get to have a better picture of the Savior that they heard of. There's this official document, the gospel of Mark and all the other gospels. It gives us greater insight into the life of Jesus Christ. And particularly in this text, this is a familiar text to all of us, but you must understand to the original audience, this is what gave them hope. Because they gave their life to Christ, and there were times when they're wondering, is this worth it? And when they read, and then when they see just pictures and glimmers of who their Savior is, it increased their faith. It allowed them to be willing to give their life to Christ. In light of whatever persecution, whatever troubles going on, they read this, and it caused them to worship the Lord better. Again, this text to us is a very common text. If you go, even look at children's Bibles or uh, you know, crafts, we, we've, we've seen these pictures of Jesus walking on water. But to the original audience, when they're reading this, they realize that the man that they know as Jesus Christ is not a regular man. And there's evidence that he is the Messiah. When they're reading this, it's not just for intellectual knowledge. It's not even for apologetic purposes. When they're reading the book of Mark, it encourages them to endure, to hold fast to Jesus Christ. That's what all scripture is supposed to be. It's supposed to encourage us in that way. It's supposed to give us a window into the life of Christ or who God is so that we can worship him faithfully and to endure no matter how difficult life is comes. And that's what I hope to encourage us as we look through this familiar story, that in difference in this entire scene is supposed to help us know Jesus more so that we can worship him better. So that even if you right now are struggling with the faith or you feel persecution from your non-believing friends and family and co-workers, that when you behold this narrative, this gospel, and this scripture about Jesus Christ, that you will make 
a greater devotion to him, that you will not be ashamed of worshiping this man, Jesus Christ. We'll start with this or outline for us. How do we get in, how do how do we know just little aspects of Jesus Christ is for us for outline? Just understand the first thing is that our Savior, He is someone that prays for us. How do we get motivated? How do we continue to hold on to the faith? Understand that our Savior is a God that prays for us. You notice in the beginning, in, in verse 45, that so immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boats. Now, the last several weeks, the different uh, preachers uh, came and they explained what was going on. From beginning from chapter 6, uh, the disciples were sent out. They were given this unique ability to go and cast out demons. And Jesus told them, do not carry any don't have anything just go out trust in me and i'll provide all that you need but you need to go out and do what i say and win people to christ and some of them involves miraculous gifts or supernatural events like casting out demons jesus gives them instructions on on what they're supposed to do as the holy spirit enables them then there's this flashback about john the baptist and how he was killed uh and and mainly he was uh, uh, he was calling out herod's sin and the result was that he was killed for it. Then last time, you guys heard a message about how Jesus fed the 5,000. And even before that, there's this little verse here in verse 31 that explains that Jesus actually wanted them to go to a place of rest. He said, come away by yourself to a secluded place and rest a while. But before they're able to go and rest, they were intercepted by a large crowd. And our Savior was compassionate enough to be interrupted, and then feed the 5,000. We know that's actually not 5,000. The 5,000 probably the men here. Um, the women and children would probably make it up to about 20 to 25,000. And Jesus was able to feed all of these individuals. And not only that, they were filled. It said in verse 42 that they all ate and were satisfied. And they even had these 12 baskets, enough for all the disciples to continue to have some sustenance. Again, this is the answer to... Um, the question, how would they live? Because remember, in, early in the chapter, when Jesus sent them out, he told them to not have any bread or bag nor money belt. They were supposed to let all of those things go and trust in Jesus and know that Jesus will provide for them. So when, they, when, they, when he saw Jesus performing this miracle of feeding all of these multitudes of people, they are supposed to know that they need to trust in him. And this is why Jesus sends them away. Jesus sends uh, the disciples away mainly to, to, to get them to maybe prepare them, as we'll see later on. But he sends this crowd away as well. And the crowd of the time in John chapter 6, it says that this crowd, these, the people that he fed, a lot of them, when they saw Jesus Christ and they saw what he did, they wanted Jesus to be the king. Some of them were willing to even attempt to overthrow the Roman government and wanted to put Jesus up there as king because they realized, well, this guy, he, I mean, he can multiply bread and fish. He can heal. He cast out demons. We want this guy to be our king. But they missed the point of why Jesus was there. Jesus did not come necessarily or not primarily to feed them physical food, but he came to deliver them from their sin. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus will one day return, and he will do all the amazing things. He will fix all the things that's broken in this world. But for now, he will just show glimmers of that, the, the, what a picture of what the future will be. And in John chapter 6, many of these people turned away because 
they wanted more. And it's just a real lesson for us that sometimes people will come to the church uh, or sometimes people claim to be followers of Jesus Christ only to get something that will be beneficial to them in a temporal sense. Jesus Christ, yes, he cares about your needs, and that's called common grace. But what Jesus cares more than your physical need is your spiritual need, that you and I, all of us, need a Savior because we've all sinned against this holy God. And Christ came into the world to redeem us from uh, the wrath of God by dying on the cross for us. He rose again to let us all know that we will be like him, that we will be resurrected and have new life in a glorified body if we place our faith and trust in him. But this crowd did not buy into it. He sends them all away. And first he tells the disciples to go ahead, and he's basically like, I'll meet you on the other side. And they send him to Bethsaida, which is, uh, means house of fish. It's about four miles away from where they're at. And then Jesus again begins to send the crowd away. And after, in verse 46, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And this is really fascinating into the life of our Savior because we know that he does pray. You know, when Jesus was on earth, there was, there was a lot of things that were limited in his life. He had to rest. He had to eat. He's also limited by time as well. God, before he came into, Christ, before he came into the world, he was outside of time. Uh, but when he entered into the world, he was bounded by the time as well. He had to, there was only a certain amount of time in the day, and he used a portion of that time not only for ministry or to journey with the disciples or for teaching or to do miracles, but he, he used a lot of his time to pray. He prayed and he wanted to have this fellowship with the Lord. We don't know exactly how, what he prayed, but we could get maybe some tips of what it might be just based on the other prayers that we see uh, from Christ in Scripture. Early on in the book of Mark, he prayed for the disciples. He prayed that, they would, that the Lord will keep them. And John 17 has the same types of prayer where Jesus is praying for the disciples, the Lord will keep them and will bring them to him the way and, and have this fellowship with him the way Christ had with the Father before eternity passed. I would imagine that part of that he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for the non-believers to become believers. But there's this unique sweetness that I think he has in just the fellowship with the Lord. He's communing with him. That's so important for Jesus Christ that he prioritized prayer. And you have to understand also that in the original audience, when they're reading this, this is another instance where you see the humanity of Christ being shown here. Just imagine being the original audience and when they're running from, the, uh, from, the, from captors or from religious leaders and all these different things. They see that Jesus Christ spent some time praying as well. And that motivated them, that, or at least that should motivate them to realize that prayer is important. It's an important part of the Christian life. Oftentimes when we think about devotions, when we say, oh, how are your devos? It, we, we mean it in the context of how are you in terms of reading God's word. And that is important. But part of your devotion needs to have prayer in it. That means you devote your time and you cut time out of your day, whatever works for you, and you commune with the Father. The New Testament tells us over and over again to pray without ceasing. And whatever opportunity we have, we pray to him. Because... The, Prayer is a luxury. It's a grace gift from the Lord. It's, it's, it's a gift because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to have this relationship with the Lord, but also because of what Christ has done, we have direct access to him through the Son. We no longer need to go to a location or a particular person to pray. We can just go directly to him because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, 
and we go and we pray to the Lord. And that should encourage all of us that when we see that Jesus Christ prays because he wants that closeness with the Lord. He's praying for non-believers and believers as well. But I think that's, that communion with the Lord is what he craves and he, what he delights. And that's what we need to be as well. And you ask yourself, just how can you increase your prayer life? How do you devote your time, more time in prayer? I know that it is a very huge temptation for us to only pray before the meals, to only pray before uh, or when there's an emergency, but to take some time, isolated time away from the regular schedule of your life to go and pray to the Lord. It's an important part of the Christian life. And if Jesus, in a lot of ways, Jesus models it for us so that we, so that therefore we need to do it ourselves. Not only that, that Jesus is a God that prays, but Jesus cares by comforting us. Look at the next scene here. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, it's fascinating when you're seeing this. You're just imagining that like, Mark is intentionally telling you that they're away from Jesus Christ, that there are, there's a, a distance between them. It's that the boat is in the middle of the sea. And understand that most of the disciples here, they're fishermen. You know, this is not, this, it's not a, this is a familiar course to them. Uh, for me, I've been, I've driven down from L.A. and back over probably at least a hundred or so times to the point where I could like close my eyes and sleep, open my eyes and know how much miles we have left or how much time we have left. In the same way, that's what the disciples were like. They were, they, they're, this, this, this little lake here is not something that's foreign to them. They know how far from one point A to point B is, even though they're going in the middle of the night. And they know that something is wrong because they're kind of off course here. Now they're in the middle of the lake. What was supposed to only be maybe a few hours journey turned into a, a very dangerous trip for them. And they went. And and the, he makes this contrast that they were in the middle of the sea and Jesus was alone on the land. But yet in verse 48, it says that seeing them, Mark gives us a little hint or at least a little picture into what Christ is like. We know Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And there are points in his life where he put, he put aside those divine abilities for, for a time. And there some, seems to be times where he's able to do those things, meaning like he had to learn, he had to grow in wisdom. And here we get a glimpse of how Jesus is actually omniscient. He's omniscient because he sees them. How can he see them? And again, don't imagine he's like on the mountain with these binoculars or thermal goggles, like looking at them, seeing, ha Peter fell off the boat again. Oh, Simon, he just dropped the oar. And it was all pitch black, and there's a storm, and he's in the land. He says, far distance is all dark. But yet somehow Jesus Christ sees them, and this shows you his divinity, that he is God, that he sees them from distance. They said they're straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And you have to understand how difficult it was. It was. It was when Jesus told them, hey, get on the boat, and I'll see you on the side. They were obedient to the Lord. They left around 6 p.m., and it says here that they were, they were there at the, about, uh, about the fourth watch of the night, which is around 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So you can imagine from 6 p.m. to, let's say, 3 a.m. That's nine hours of rowing. And they are horrified at what's going on because they've been in the boat with a storm before. And what's different between this time and the last time when Jesus was at the last time, Jesus was on the boat. 
he's under boat. Jesus was sleeping. They're like basically rebuking Jesus. Jesus, don't you care about us? Now they're in this boat. There's a storm, and Jesus is not with them. And they're horrified. And the reason why they are there, though, the reason why that they're in this storm is because they obeyed Jesus Christ. Remember, in verse 45, Jesus made his disciples go into this boat. They obeyed him, and the result is that they are in this storm. There is a reality for us as Christians that obeying Jesus Christ will, somehow, will sometimes invite hard times. First Peter tells us that sometimes living a holy life, I mean, yes, that's important, will, in, will, will inevitably cause persecution for us. And then this is a, it's just, just imagine if you were one disciples in this boat, how frustrated you might be. I'm in this situation because I listened to Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, Jesus did not just leave them alone. It's that he was, he's, he's seeing them. He, he knows them. And this should be a comforting thought for us that when we are faithfully living for the Lord, when we're obeying him, when we're trying to live holy lives, even under very dark and hard, difficult times, our Lord is still with us. This is why in Matthew 28, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, even to the end of the age. When you're doing your evangelism and people are making fun of you, understand that our Lord is with us. When you're at work and people are slandering and blaspheming the name of the Lord and they're making fun of you for your faith, understand the Lord is with us. When you are with your non-believing family and they are making disparaging remarks about Jesus Christ and you feel completely isolated from your family, know that Jesus Christ is with you. He sees you. He is with you. And that obedience to the Lord, yes, it will sometimes cause, be, it, might, it might feel very difficult, but know and find comfort in the reality that God is with you and he will never leave you or forsake you said here that he came to them walking on the sea. And I'm trying to visualize what this is like. Because when you see, like, you know, children Bibles and their illustrations, oftentimes the water seems kind of calm. But it shouldn't be, right? Because there's a storm, so it must be some sort of wave going on. But yet he's still somehow leveled. And yet he does, it doesn't seem like he's drenched. Uh, MacArthur thinks that as Jesus is walking, the storm kind of like stops with him. Like every step he goes, the storm just kind of stops. So you're imagining just like you can see past Jesus, everything seems calm. But, in, but from you in the boat to where Jesus is at, there's a storm. He, and he seems to be walking closer. And it said here that and he intended to pass by them. Now, a lot of commentaries differ on what this means, and it, it seems when you're reading at it as if, it's as if Jesus is just going to walk past them, like, okay, well, hey, guys, and just like intended to go by them. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think this idea of intending to, to, um, intend to pass by them, it has this, especially the language, it has this idea of showing them that he is divine. This word, pass by, is the same word that's used to describe when Moses was on the mountain. He said he wants to see God. He's asking God, I want to see you. And, and God said, if you see my face, you will be incinerated. So I'm going to hide you behind a rock and pass by you. That's the same word. That, he's, that Moses got a little glimpse of who God is. 
And this is what Jesus is doing. I think when he's walking by on the water, they're supposed to see this and they realize that Jesus is God, that he is more than just a man, that this person that they've been following in, for the last two years is something more than man. And they have a level of faith, but it seems like they are not sure, and the Lord has showing this to them as a means to increase their faith. Verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. It's always fascinating when you read liberal commentators that, that's trying to dismantle this. They'll say, well, Jesus is, wasn't actually on the water. Uh, it was like a shallow ground, which sometimes when liberal tries to dismantle scripture, it actually is even more miraculous than what the Bible describes. Because, or even absurd, because if, if Jesus was on shallow water, it seems like he's on the ground, then wouldn't the apostles just, they, wouldn't, they just, couldn't they just get out of the boat and just walk towards Jesus in this shallow ground? Or they'll say things like he was on the side and like he was actually on land and just looks like they're on the shore. Uh, it looks like he's in the, in the water. Well, it's the same thing. That means that he's close enough where the disciples can jump out and swim to the shore. No, this is, they were miles in the middle of the sea and Jesus was, was close by to them. And they said they supposed it was a ghost. And it's fascinating because around that time, there was this, I mean, we know that early in the book of Mark, there was, remember the pigs that, they, that Jesus took out, uh, all the demons out, of, or he took out the, the demonia and put into the pigs, the pig jumped into the water. They thought that those demons from those pigs got out. And now they're, this, now this phantom appears in front of them. That's why they cried out. This word cried out, it's just basically... And like crying like a little baby, like this high-pitched squeal. They were horrified by what they're seeing because they thought it was some sort of ghost. And yet Jesus provides so much comfort because when, verse 54, they saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. This word, I mean, there's, there's like three commands here, um, or there's actually two commands. Uh, it says, take courage, do not be afraid. You know, he told them, be, be strong, be brave, and do not be afraid. And it said, it is I. And what a comforting it is to know that Jesus was there. You know, they were afraid because, like, they remember the first time Jesus was there. Now they're horrified, and now Jesus returned. They're like, okay, Jesus is here now. And this phrase, it is I, it's the same word that's used in the book of John and all the I am statements about how Jesus, I am the, the way, the truth, and life, and no one gets a father at, but by me. Before Abraham was, I am. It's the same word here. So Jesus is using this phrase, and really is a callback to, back to the book of Exodus again. Just, right, just like when Moses, when, uh, when he first met God and Yahweh, he asked, how should I call, what's your name? How do I describe you to Pharaoh? He says, I am. This is the same word here. And it's supposed to show them again that Jesus is divine. And there is no fear because he is there with them. He's trying to encourage them. He gives them comfort knowing that Jesus is God. We know as believers, and again, especially those early day believers, when they're reading this, they know that the God that they worship is not just some man, not some sort of weird prophet, not some sort of false teacher, but he is God. So in light of whatever difficulty that they might have, as they're reading this, they need to, they, it, would, it would have encouraged them and gave them, strengthened them to not be afraid in light of whatever persecution they might go through. We as believers, modern day, can relate. 
in a time where it seems like the world's getting more secular and darker and there's more antagonism towards Christianity where it seems like it's almost okay to talk down to Christians, don't be afraid. Be encouraged. Know that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. Take comfort in the fact that we worship a real God. We're not worshiping some sort of phantom. We're not worshiping just merely a man. We're worshiping God himself. Not only does Jesus praise for his disciples, not only does Jesus comfort us, but Jesus reveals himself. Verse 51, then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the instant of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Again, this is, explains why Jesus even sent them away, because despite the fact that they saw Jesus perform this miracle, Jesus knew that his close disciples and the crowd were only, only, their faith was only marginally apart. It wasn't even that far apart. It's a little bit. He, he knows that even though there are some people that, that, that came and saw Jesus do all these miracles, they didn't believe. And there were some, even amongst his disciples, although they followed him and even professed that Jesus Christ is Lord, there was still a hard-heartedness to them. They didn't fully believe there was this weak faith that they have. It said that their hearts were hardened. Again, this should be a callback to when Pharaoh was that way. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He was someone that saw all the miraculous things of the Lord and all the plagues, yet his heart was hardened. And it's easy for us to think, that we will not be like the disciples. If we were in this position, if we saw all the things that, that, we, that, that Jesus has done, that we would totally have faith. And this is the evidence that just because you have evidence, that doesn't mean you have genuine faith. And so, but yet, at the same time, God is so gracious to them and to us. There are so many times in our lives when we struggle with the faith, when there's seemingly evidence that we see on the Internet against the Bible, and yet, at the same time, God always finds a way to break through, to reveal himself to us, mainly through his word. But truth is truth. And sometimes, I mean, when you look at the secular world, they will somehow, sometimes, they will make these arguments about the way the world and life should be. It's pretty much exactly what scripture has to say. I think that's God's kindness and, and still working in the lives of even non-believers to show them that God is the creator, and everything that goes in this world, there's a specific order, no matter how much the world wants to distort it. There's something written in our hearts that tells, that cries out, there is a God. Yes, there's the common grace in terms of just natural revelation. Every time we wake up and we look out, that is God revealing himself that everything has an order to it, that God is one who made all of these things. Most importantly, God is so kind in giving us scripture. The fact that we have the entire canon, it should be, we should see it as a blessing because we don't deserve anything. If God left us in the dark, it would have been perfectly fine because our hearts are darkened. But yet, the Lord in this moment, even though he knows that the disciples failed, he put them through this 
stormy trial so that they can know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Despite the fact that they fail to see the first time, God is so gracious in showing them more and more evidence of himself, more and more evidence of he is the divine God, that he is the one that is worth worshiping, to live for, and to die for. They failed, but yet God still reveals. And that's how our faith is going to be. Again, we will struggle at times, and I will encourage you that when you feel those emotions of doubt and struggling with your faith, and you want to know who God is, go to the scriptures. Because the scriptures have everything pertaining to life of godliness. It's the only way that we know who God is. God has time and time again revealed himself in, uh, in God's word, and, and also just providentially in history. We can trust in the Lord and this God, and it should embolden us to continue to worship him faithfully. The Lord, our God, is not just a God that, uh, that prays for us, or he's not just a God that comforts us, but he's also a God that reveals himself to us. And I hope that if you are a believer tonight, that you treasure Jesus Christ, that you look to him, you see that he is praying for you, that uh, he, even now he's interceding for us. And that means that he's, he's praying for you, he's, he's going to sustain you, there's assurance of your salvation, and that you don't need to worry um, knowing that we have a God that cares for us. And you know, our God is a God of comfort. That in light of all the difficulties in your life, that he comforts us. Yes, you may go through chaos in life, but in Christ you'll find calm and peace. There may be different storms in your life as well, but in Christ you'll find serenity. And it's because the Lord our God is the God of comforts. And lastly, our God reveals himself first and foremost in his word, and as a believer, you understand that you even understanding God's word is an act of grace, that the Lord has worked in your heart, that he opened your eyes, he gave you a new heart, so you will know him, and to behold the richness of what the scripture has to say about the Lord. And I hope that that's you, that no matter how hard things are, look to Jesus Christ, see how he interacted in the world, see how he impacted the original readers and bold them to be able to continue on the faith so that we have, throughout history, the gospel just keeps going down to the point that we have the gospel. And understanding God's redemptive history, that he's revealed himself in different ways, but in, the, in this last era, he revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word again. We're grateful that you are a God that is kind to us by revealing yourself to us. We're grateful for this gospel that you providentially preserved so that we can get a better picture of who you are. And Lord, although we have never seen you, we still love you. And it's only because of what you reveal in your word. Help us, Lord, to cherish your word and to continue to grow in our love for you through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, cause us to be bold and courageous in our evangelism and living holy lives. May we be faithful to you in all that we do, Lord. We thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.
I know that our message is a little bit shorter tonight, but it gives us more time to just fellowship. So I have some questions, discussion questions for us. I think I have two, I've sent in two questions. Yeah. Uh, okay, first question is this. How can I prioritize prayer this week? And uh, so that's the first question. How can I prioritize prayer this week? Uh, second question is, how can Jesus' divine attributes encourage me during hard times? How can Jesus' divine attributes encourage me during hard times? 